Hey, welcome to the Gentle Rebel podcast, where we talk about navigating life's harsher edges with a spirit of compassionate creativity. I'm Andy Mort, I'm a songwriter and a creativity coach, and I love exploring the power of gentleness in creating the conditions for meaningful change in life from the inside out. This is another uh, dive into the idea of instigating change. This is something that we looked at a little bit in the previous episode, um, but I realised there's a lot more that I wanted to share um, around this topic as we as we think about the part that that we play in creating shifts in our lives. We've been talking about sort of embracing change, so looking at the kinds of change that happen um, because time moves on, because you know things naturally progress. These are the changes that we can anticipate coming and it's a, a case of sort of embracing um, embracing these changes as we move through uh, processes like aging through the seasons through all these sorts of things um, then the other type of changes like the unexpected uh, uh, shifts and shocks that come uh, that we're not expecting that we can't predict necessarily um, things that just come out of the blue and uh, so this idea of um, absorbing change comes with that. Um, and then the, there's this, um, so we looked last time at the idea of sort of the, the fear or um, the threat of change, the, the sense that even change that we want, that we desire in life um, can kind of, we can engage with it as if it's a threat. We can have all of these mixed feelings towards it um, and can end up maybe sabotaging um, the, the progress that we might make, the growth that we want to um, embark on. Um, and yeah, and end up, yeah, sort of seeing change through a a very mixed lens. Um, and so I want this week, um, to, to really look at, um, I guess the, the foundations for why we might want to instigate change. I think that's one of the underpinning, um, things of this episode. And so thinking about what, you know, what's our relationship like with the idea of change, in particular, our ability to make change happen. And I'm going to revisit a few posts that I, uh, so a couple of episodes that I recorded um, uh, a while ago, a few posts that I wrote, uh, posts that I've um, kind of stumbled upon again. As I, So I, I've been updating my course, The Return to Serenity Island, recently, and I was looking at some of the ideas that um, were, were kind of foundational to it, um, some of the thinking that I was, I was doing at the time when I first launched it. And in many ways, I, I'd forgotten how interesting and helpful some of these things are uh, to visit, and to revisit if we've been through them before, if we've thought about them before, they're just they're just really good and and helpful to to kind of go back and and look at again. Um, and so, yeah, the Return to Serenity Island is is basically a program that I created um, after the first year of the pandemic. Um, it, it was kind of my uh, I'd I'd been going through a goal setting like a very traditional goal setting course, and I was just really bored with it. And so this was this was my way of um, so I did it entirely for myself at first to to sort of mix that process up to make it more interesting and compelling to me um and like to some degree at that point in time uh traditional goal setting courses seemed a bit like as if they were missing something <laughs> missing uh i guess missing the lens of um a global pandemic and the potential for something to disrupt everything in such a uh, a massive way and so i was I kind of going through this process, I was using a series of maps and concepts from adventure stories to to think about life in more of a a non-linear way. Uh, And so to kind of take this non-linear approach to goals 
um, and uh, factoring in uh, the unexpected ruptures that life apparently can throw <laughs> in our way at times. Um, and I wanted to develop a way of thinking about personal growth outside of uh, of this very sort of one-dimensional linear goal-setting concept. And so, you know, I, I found this, this idea of adve- adventure and creating maps were a great answer to this. So I, I then developed the course uh, more seriously. It went through a couple of iterations. Um, I launched it properly in March of 2021 um, and then uh, I'm uh, currently, so I'm recording this in uh, September of 2022, um, and I've just been sort of, yeah, updating it and and reworking it so that um, it's ready to to go again. So let's start with the idea of uh, late blooming. This was something that was a, a big uh, a big concept as I was um, as I was creating the course originally. Uh, it's something that caught my eye as I returned to the conversations that I was having around the time of that launch, in particular, a chat that I had with Kendra Patterson. Um, she published a podcast on this topic um, and her, her podcasts are a bit of a theme in, in this episode and the last one. Um, <laughs> I talked about uh, the, the one about fear of success last week. Um, but this idea that late bloomers are people who accomplish things later in life is summed up, I, I guess, quite perfectly but somewhat ironically uh, by a quote in the uh, that was on the back of uh, Rich Cargard's book Late Bloomers it's from the Wall Street Journal and they say our culture uh, exalts youthful brilliance over mature achievement talent often flourishes later in life when experience brings wisdom the institutions and organizations that dominate so much of our lives should pay heed um and I did think, you know, it's, I say somewhat ironically because I, I think it's largely the media that is is often responsible for a culture that exalts certain things over other things, and so this this kind of obsession with with youth in and success coming young seems to be driven not wholly by uh, by mass media, but like definitely they play a big part in just glorifying and celebrating young success and. Uh, both implicitly and explicitly in this idea that, you know, you're, you're over the hill or you're like, you get to a certain age, it's like the success, it's not that great if you're that age, you know? Um, and I think late blooming, it's a concept that even by its name tells us something about what we value as society, what we prioritize and promote in that sense. And in the episode about embracing change, I talked about how we have a strange relationship with the idea of age. You know, we celebrate those who achieve things quickly and young and to some degree write people off when we think, yeah, they're, they're too old. Um, in some ways, we encourage an attitude that says we should settle and stop changing at a certain point as well. This is, again, an, maybe an implied message that comes from like, yeah, no, change and success and um, progress and growth that's you know that's the preserve of the young that's for people who are you know at that sort of cutting edge of society whatever and then painting those who continue to explore and grow and create later in life either as having some kind of crisis or um, being a bit of an outlier as we because we also do celebrate older people achieving or accomplish things accomplishing things uh, with the same kind of uh, I don't know what the right word is, like dehumanizing fervor. So like just not allowing us ourselves to be human in our successes, in our like desires and the things that we want to achieve wherever we are in life. Um, and so I think that there's almost a, 
yes, yeah, sort of a mirroring of that, you know, celebrating people super young achieving things and then celebrating people super old achieving things. I guess I'm, I feel really passionate about normalizing deep growth, creative play and exploratory venture as part of life throughout all of life. Um, and this is where the conversation I had with Kendra um, really resonates with all of this stuff. You know, uh, she says, the more I learn about late blooming, the more I think we're all late bloomers. Our society pushes us to achieve early to all our detriments. I can remember feeling like a late bloomer in my 20s. and I certainly feel like one now in the midst of a career change in midlife. Really, we should be embracing late blooming or as I like to call it, repeat blooming. Life just feels so much better when you believe that it has more than one act. I don't know about you, but I, I just find that rings so true. And just it's this, this question of like, why do we limit ourselves in so many ways like this? Because we do. Like the idea of finding your purpose or calling. Actually, these things are, are repeating spirals. We go in, we go through, we come out, we go back round. Like all of these things, they're repeating. They are um, a repeat blooming. Do you feel like one of life's late bloomers? Maybe this stuff rings true for you too. Um, hopefully you, you hear this and you think, ah, as an element of comfort in knowing that it's okay. You know, and if we rewrite the script to allow for repeat blooming, we might find a way towards deeper levels of self-acceptance and permission to let the weird and wonderful happen in and around us, whatever stage of life we're at. It's one of the fundamental principles that I adhere to and promote and really encourage people to think about in my coaching. You know, it's something I see over and over and over as I explore with people of all ages, you know, what it might mean for their life to realize there's always another chapter waiting to be written. That new chapter is going to follow on from the previous one, but it builds on it. It's different from it. And we can write unexpected twists. We can develop character in different ways and we can introduce new story arcs. Late bloomers don't just approach life at a slower speed. Their orientation to the world is different from what we might consider to be normal modes of operating. Kendra looks at the difference between conceptual and experimental types of people as holding some clues and keys to how we might understand this idea of repeat blooming. So conceptual types have a clear picture of how they want things to look. They work deductively. So they, they kind of know where they want to go. They've got a clear plan in order to get there. Uh, and this comes from research by uh, Weinberg and Gallenson um, from 2019. They looked at the lives of Nobel laureates in economics and they found that conceptual innovators made their most significant contributions to the field in their mid-20s. And then experimental types, uh, who we might consider the late bloomers, start with a step and build incrementally, often without a clear picture of where each step is going to ultimately lead them. They connect dots as they go and their creativity is underpinned by discovery along the way. They work inductively rather than deductively. So they accumulate knowledge from experience and they use that to build onto the next uh, phase, the next step, whatever. And in that research, uh, Weinberg and Gallenson uh, found that experimental types actually made their biggest impact during their 50s. So 30 years later than their conceptual peers. As we say, society enjoys stories of youth and early bloomer success. And that's understandable, but it can lead us to uh, 
carry a belief that if we're destined for success, quote unquote, then we will know in some way by our late 20s whether we are a successful person or not. And as we get older, it can feel more and more like we haven't achieved our potential, that we've lost our chance, that we are a failure. But this is just a story. Yes, there are things that that you kind of well may may well have missed the boat on. You know, I'm no longer going to be a Premier League footballer like I dreamed of as a 10-year-old. Many footballers have retired from top-level professional football um, way before my age. Uh, that might take a little bit of processing. There might be some grief tied up in that. Um, I think I'm over it. I think I'm okay about it. Um, but I did other stuff instead, didn't I? And there are many paths left to explore and many paths off those paths that I haven't even considered the possibilities of yet. It's not easy to accept and pursue an experimental journey. It's not really encouraged um, by a lot of, I guess, mainstream culture. Um, we have a, a much more linear sense of how life uh, ought to play out or how life naturally should play out. It moves along a single path. We tick things off as we go. We might experience setbacks along the way, but then we're encouraged to get back on track. That's a, a term that we use, isn't it? Rather than heading off in a completely different direction, using that as a catalyst for, okay, right, I'm now facing this way. What's, what's up that way? Maybe I'll move towards that. Um, and a lot of our world is geared towards conceptual thinking because I guess at one level, it's easy to understand. It's simple to measure. You can identify what it is that you want you work out how to get there and then you know exactly what it means to get there. Um, We can know whether or not to think of you and your life as successful because we have this sort of barometer of success. We have this thing to hold up and say, yeah, you you were moving towards that, but you didn't get there. Um, Therefore, you failed. But as we explored last week, success, this idea, this concept of success is so much more complex, so much more nuanced than this idea. There is so much more to a successful life as we might define it for ourselves. And I want to kind of really think about what success might feel like, what success kind of is when we're holding it within this this context of experimental approaches to life. Have you ever been asked where you see yourself in five years? How did you respond? How would you respond uh, if you were asked today, if I was to ask you right now? I struggle to think in long-term abstractions. don't know about you. I think I, I always have done. But I never really thought about why for me and for many people, this might be an impossible question to answer. Where do you see yourself in five years' time? If you, um, if you search for begin with the end in mind, almost every result will tell you to define your de- destination with as much clarity and detail and specificity as you possibly can so that you can then draw a pretty much straight, efficient line between where you are and that desired point in the future. Many articles on this carry a a bit of a, a kind of judgmental, a shaming spirit. This idea that if you can't say where you're going to be in five years, then there's something wrong with you. This is everything relies on you knowing exactly where you want to get so that you have this clear picture. And then from there, you break it down into goals and then you know exactly where you're going. And if you don't have that, you must try harder um, and don't start acting until you're clear. But what if we don't get clear on where we want to go until we start acting? What if we can't really know where we're going until we get there? and our route to joy 
is the journey itself. It's found along the way. It's the experimenting, the moving, the joining dots, the building experiences that take us in all manner of unexpected directions. It's not an easy path to justify in our modern world. You know, society likes nice, neat roadmaps and linear processes from problem to solution as quickly and as efficiently as possible. But by trying to squeeze ourselves into these boxes, we neglect our natural orientation, our natural preferences, our natural approach, which might be to not like, I I cannot hold this destination in mind. I cannot hold this end in mind at that level, that, that sort of time scale. What if some people have no idea where they want to be in five years time? Not because they refuse to dream, but because life just doesn't work like that for them. They don't engage with the world like that. And what if rather than being flaky or something, this is actually a really healthy and useful approach to take. We talk about the firm back, soft front gentleness that helps us bring a sense of strong peace and calm to our lives, like a shock absorber that's able to hold and integrate the unexpected twists and turns that might come along. The experimental approach gives us margin and space to recalibrate through disappointments, setbacks and losses. I think this is potentially far more useful than an approach that sets us on a single path, pinning all our hopes and dreams on one outcome. What happens when the world changes as fast as it seems to change right now? What happens when unexpected events leave business as usual turned inside out? Repeat blooming is an incredible, powerful tool in the face of such a world. We hold our core values within the changing flow and find meaningful ways forward without getting bitter and resentful about a world that won't let us get to where we want to go. Because where we want to go gently changes as we go, not as an aimless, directionless drift, but as a firm back, soft front adventure where we hold our values and our vision at the centre and figure out how are we going to respond, which direction are we going to move in light of the things going on in and around our lives, our relationships, the world at large. How are we going to move through this, with this, in this? The relationship we have with our core underlying traits informs the story we tell ourselves about ourselves. This is especially significant if society prefers and promotes one approach or trait over others. So society celebrates people who follow a conviction about what they wanted to do with their life from an early age, those who pursued their passion with unwavering drive and determination. We say, follow your dream with the unspoken assertion that everyone has one, a tangible, concrete thing that we were born to do, put on earth to do, Um, you know, and for some people, this idea of finding their purpose or knowing uh, you know what, what they were meant to do with their life whatever is exciting and enjoyable it's something that helps them make sense of life but for others it can be a huge source of underlying anxiety and it can underpin the story we write for ourselves about ourselves based on what we're taught to believe about the right way to be we might let life happen to us then as we accept do you know what Maybe I, d- I don't have a purpose. I don't have this thing I was put here to do. I accept that I'm just a failure. I'm a drifter. I'm a perennial underachiever. 
But what if the success for people like that was found in the heart of the journey itself? What if joy was not the dream of getting to the destination, but it was discovering, exploring and experimenting along the way to the destination? Realising, actually, the destination doesn't really matter. And what if that approach to life wasn't seen as time-wasting, procrastinating and unfocused, but actually key ingredients to your success as a human being, in your beingness, in your becomingness. This is success, not as achievement, but as journey. And what if you could begin to accept yourself in all that messy beauty and even find a way to make it work in practical, intellectual and emotional ways? When I look back at my own life, I see this so clearly. You know, I've never been one for for really long-term conceptual goals. Um, And I used to beat myself up for not sticking with things or getting distracted, allowing projects to kind of veer away from their original intent, you know. And and I'd have these these clear moments when I first started uh, or first start out um, with a project or whatever, where I think, yeah, that's exactly how it's going to end up. And then inevitably it doesn't. I'll something will happen along the way where it's like, oh, that's interesting. Let's explore that avenue within this context. And then invariably the whole thing will end up being very different by the end of it um, than it seemed to be at the start of it. And so, you know, that can be a cause for like beating yourself up and and thinking, "I, I never, I never do what I set out to do. But stepping out of that self-judgment and away from that critical inner ego, I can see that so many things that I'm most proud of in life so far are the result of this messy process of becoming, this inside-out blossoming. Yes, of projects themselves, but also of who I am as a person. I feel like I'm always becoming more of that as I continue exploring new things, not as a quest to discover myself, but simply as a byproduct of following that experimental path and constantly asking like, oh, I wonder what happens if I go down this path for a bit. And again, this is not an aimless drift, but I think it's worth thinking about the idea of drift so that we can make that distinction between types of drift that take us away from where we want to be. And then to hold that in light of this experimental approach and to realize, okay, that's not drifting just because you don't know where exactly where you're going to get, get to, that doesn't mean you're drifting. So let's start with drift for conceptual types. They might drift away from themselves through an unhealthy attachment to up and to the right. They might tether to goals as a source of their identity which can look like growth, you know, from the outside, it looks like, oh, they're, they're really driven, they're achieving all of these amazing things. And they're, you know, it's kind of, they're on this pursuit of, of massive growth and, and all of that sort of stuff. But actually it might be taking them off track in a very linear way, a very direct way away from themselves, the pursuit of more, better, faster, you know, uh, for conceptual types, the the drift they risk is maybe the treadmill of pursuit and supposed to mirages. Humans are wonderful at quickly adapting to new realities and following the common assumptions and expectations of the crowd. It's an ability that has been key to our survival as a species through the ages. The hedonic treadmill 
also known as as hedonic adaptation, is the observed tendency of humans to quickly return to a relatively stable level of happiness despite major positive or negative events or life changes. This is, again, yes, this ability to adapt, absolutely key to um, to survival, to kind of moving through life and adapting to new circumstances. And this is something I talked about in the previous episode in relation to our rejection of wariness as well. You know, we often cycle down into new levels of acceptable norm- normality. And if we're not doing the necessary things to to plan, to prepare, to be proactive in our mitigation so that life is actually getting better, things are improving for people, for ourselves, for, for everyone, we might actually find ourselves heading in the opposite direction, adapting to and accepting worse and worse conditions because we forget, actually, <laughs> this is not where we're supposed to be. And so the drift of the conceptual type comes from the belief in the mirage on the horizon, the sense that maybe happiness, wholeness and completeness are found uh, in the completion of a goal, in the achievement, in the accomplishment of something. But these feelings, this happiness, this wholeness, this completeness, as we talked about last time, always just slightly elude us. They're forever just a little bit further down the road. And so we drift on the message that once we get there, everything's going to be okay. But when we arrive at where we saw the mirage, we discover, oh, it's just an illusion. There's nothing here. Until another one appears and you think, oh, maybe, maybe that's the answer. So we say, okay, I'm going to pursue that next shimmering promise. That must be where it went. But what if there is no there there? What if we recognize the promise that comes through advertising and ideological messaging around what we are supposed to want and achieve if we're to be happy as the illusion that it is. What freedom might we discover right here when we do that? To come back to the messy, playful chaos around us in this moment, only when we break with supposed to, will we begin to feel the possibilities for growing life from the inside out instead. And so even for conceptual types who bloom early in life, there is an opportunity, an invitation to repeat bloom here not as a way to rediscover or emulate past glories, but to enjoy present and future creative adventures. For experimental types, the future emerges from a pathway of incremental curious exploration. We connect dots and build from one experience to the next. As such, life might be naturally slower to unfold and evolve, which is why experimental people might be late or repeat bloomers. Such people don't have a concrete vision maybe for where they want to be in five years time. That might not be how life unfolds because it grows from within, out from a core of beingness. If we're unaware of how to relate to this approach, we might end up drifting without any sense of real direction. And this can then be compounded by the story told by the world around us. Experimental approaches to life are not generally valued or encouraged in a lot of mainstream culture. As a collective, we enjoy success stories about the youth. We demand quick fix solutions, simple solutions to deep long term complex problems. And we hear that if it can't be measured, it can't be managed. And if you can't manage it, you can't improve it. So why would you waste your time on it? What if this is a neat sounding load of garbage? One of those quotes that sounds true at a surface level, but is actually rather diminutive and damaging to people. 
by the standards of an up and to the right society, the messy path of inside out becoming might be seen as drifting, procrastination and a waste of time. And through osmosis, this message can seep into that story that we tell ourselves about ourselves. We hear it, we're told it, and eventually we believe it because like the idea that you can't improve what you don't measure, it seems true. But only because it speaks to a very narrow particular way of filtering, of engaging with the world. When a prevailing narrative takes a stronghold of society, those who don't conform to the modus operandi might seem to feel like they don't fit. But not only that, they genuinely don't fit. They might start to feel like they're broken, unworthy, not enough, or less than, because they aren't like everybody else. Or at least that's how it seems. But, quote-unquote, everybody else is another story we're told. The truth is, speak to a lot of people and they feel the same way. Everybody else is just the prevailing story of supposed to be and how things should be. And in reality, many people who appear like everybody else are just performing, pretending, trying to fit into that mould of what they're told everybody else is. Drift becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. When you find yourself in that boat, so to speak, it's not your fault. And while it may seem like you're not like everybody else, there are so many people who feel the same. They're often just quieter. They're there wondering why they're not like everybody else. It's impossible to bend yourself out of shape when it comes to these natural preferences. For example, if you're rushed into completing things before you've had time and space that you need to explore at your own pace, you're not going to reach your potential. You're not going to process it in the way that you need to process it. And you won't hit the standards that you want, that you're capable of. This prevents you from bringing the best of yourself to the world. And it buries the truth of who you are. It buries your possibilities. Maybe you feel like you're caught in the drift right, right now. Do you ever feel like you're caught drifting through life? I know many people are experiencing this in different ways. Drift is a, it's an unsettling and anxious driving force. It leads us away from ourselves, either as that inability to take the next step through things like analysis paralysis, fear of doing the wrong thing, you know, perfectionism, or as frenetic pursuit, frenetic action, mindless movement in any direction. It doesn't matter which direction, just as long as I don't stop, I just need to keep moving. When we drift, we lose control of our direction. We have no agency over the route that we are taking. Things happen to us. Things happen around us. And once we're caught drifting, it can be really difficult to find a way back to ourselves. Funnily enough, we never drift to the destination that we want to get to. It's only through deliberate momentum in the right direction that you get to where you want to go. You know, if you want to be in better health or to clear debts or to have stronger relationships, you're never going to drift to that place. You need to pick up the oars and start rowing, so to speak. Drift is dangerous because we end up in places we've not chosen to go. Our sense of agency disappears. We might start to get sort of niggling feelings of dissatisfaction and regrets. It can lead us to a place of ill health, both literally and figuratively. 
And as we talked about last week, it can lead us to become proverbial firefighters, constantly reacting to life rather than proactively designing it. We slide into situations and crises, one after another, things we might have been able to prevent, but without the awareness of what is causing it, we're unable to do what's necessary to respond from a place of empowered responsibility. How does drift start? Where does it come from? And how can we um, kind of mitigate its effects, undo its effects? I like thinking about uh, everything as breath. Time is represented by clocks, seasons, and years. These are repeating cycles with rhythmic patterns, expansions, contractions. Everything is breath, an inhale and an exhale. Space is represented through atlases and maps. They give us a picture of how and where the material world is positioned around us. Everything exists in temporal space relative to everything else. Things are formed. They expand, contract, degrade and reform into something new. Everything is breath. We keep the myth going. We pass milestones judged by time. We use age as a symbolic representation of who we are, and yet it says nothing intrinsically meaningful about who we are. We know that it means nothing. Think of your response to that question. How does it feel to be 10? <laughs> On your birthday, when you turn 10, how does it feel now that you're 50? It feels no different at all. Why? Because the joy of life is not found in a linear experience of it. Joy, flow, love, play, creativity. All these things transcend the boxes, the labels, the identities that we try to squeeze life into, the things that we try to make, give meaning to things. Palliative care nurse Bronnie Ware recorded the thoughts and patients in the final 12 weeks of their lives. Just when questioned about any regrets they had or anything they'd do differently, common themes surfaced again and again. All five of the biggest regrets are underpinned by drift and a belief in the myth of life as a linear process. When we fall for this myth, we engage in a pursuit of the unattainable object that I mentioned earlier. We get close to this in moments of existential angst. You know, maybe you've had these sorts of experiences yourself where you think, I've done this, I've pursued that, I've achieved that, I've accomplished whatever, and yet I'm still not where I think I'm supposed to be. The present moment is a canvas, our canvas, and that canvas is all we truly have. Our intuitive, our real, our authentic understanding of life is not linear. Memories aren't on a chronological conveyor belt. Sometimes our old experiences can feel completely present. And when we think of them, it's like no time has passed. It's like those relationships with people where there is a fold in the timeline between meetings. doesn't matter how long it's been, you just pick up exactly where you left off. It's like being two dots either side of a piece of paper. It looks like those dots are 
a long way away from each other, but then you fold it in half and they're right next to each other. That's how it feels at times. What if we were to picture life with the same awareness, to see our story not as a timeline but as a map where everything is connected? We can reach anywhere we want within the landscape of who we are because that's how life is. What if we could step off this linear conveyor belt to recognise it for the myth that it is? We can start to release the anxiety of not yet being and the shame of not having been and draw the canvas of our present from the inside, living from a position of nowness, of gratitude and acceptance instead of supposed to, will, when and if only. Within this moment we find what has already been and what is yet to come, all within the single seed of being. Drift is not the end of the story. We might suddenly wake up to find ourselves somewhere we don't want to be, ready for a change to take place, and that might feel overwhelming. We might be wondering, well, what do I do with this? Where do I start? How do I actually come back to the shore? I know I'm not where I want to be, but I also have no idea how to get anywhere else. How do we begin identifying what we actually want instead of this drift? This underpins one of the reasons why I created uh, the Return to Serenity Island that I mentioned earlier. The Serenity Island is kind of this map of our life. It has those most important aspects of life, our relationships, our health, our work, our spirituality, our family, our creativity, and so on and so forth. These are all represented on this island. We can see where things have become overgrown, where we've drifted, where things are hard to navigate. We find areas of sludge, broken power cables and parts that have maybe fizzled and faded. Bits that we can't see anymore because they've become so overrun by rubble and weeds. But at the same time, we look at this and we feel the potential. We feel the hope. We feel the possibilities. Author of Atomic Habits, James Clear, says many people think they lack motivation when what they really lack is clarity. In seeking the motivation to do positive things, to instigate desirable changes, we can overthink, we can overcomplicate and overwhelm our good intentions. Somewhere along the line, the drive for motivation results in a lack of action because it drowns the true requirement for progress which is a simple sense of clarity. Where is it we want to get? What's the plan for getting from where we are to where we want to go? And how do we reconcile this within our experimental approach rather than sort of pinning everything onto this conceptual framework? That's what the Return to Serenity Island is about. It's what it's built on. It's tempting to overcomplicate our goals, to overthink, seek perfection and get bogged down in details, to sabotage our efforts by clouding things with unnecessary levels of planning. You know, I used to do that as a student. When it came to revising for exams, I was an expert self-motivator. I produced some magnificent revision timetables with really intricate colour coding and topic keys. And, you know, I was very motivated, really, really motivated by that. Um, 
but that was about as far as I went with revision. You know, the whole thing felt futile if I started to actually tackle the mountain of work. Um, you know, it suddenly became clear, actually, do you know what? I don't have enough time for all of this. So I did what any good student would do. I moved to plan B. I thought, well, if I don't have time for all of this, I don't have time for any of it. So I'm going to go and play golf. Part of the simple clarity is kind of tied up in this idea of making the desirable thing, making the right thing, the easy or the simple thing to do. So setting ourselves up with a clear path forwards, making the making sort of setting ourselves up for success rather than for failure when it comes to the thing that we want to do more of in life or that we want to uh, give attention to. A good example of this is leaving kind of workout clothes at the end of your bed if you're, uh, you know, wanting to go to the gym first thing in the morning or as I did when I first started running, um, wanted to ensure that I remembered to go running. So I'd leave my uh, running gear by the door um, so that I'd actually have to actively choose to not put them on. I'd have to actually pick them up and move them if I wanted to leave the room before putting them on. Um, or, you know, leaving a book on your pillow. So you you have to choose to put it away rather than read it before bed if that's something that you want to do. Um, you know, making it as easy as possible to implement habits that you want to change, removing barriers, removing steps so that you have clarity on exactly uh, what you need to do next. You don't need more motivation in this sense. You don't need more inspiration. You don't need more willpower. You just need clarity and simplicity, clear plans, a clear, simple next step in the right direction, the direction that you want to move. And then you can just sort of do it. <laughs> um, and remembering that small steps, when they're strung together, result in big adventures. Walking in circles sometimes has negative connotations, doesn't it? It conjures an image of confusion, chaos, uh, maybe an inability to commit to um, a particular path forward. But what happens when that path is circular? I think this is a really helpful way to think about personal growth. Um, It's something that I'm very mindful of um, around the Serenity Island stuff. You know, personal growth doesn't happen in straight lines. It always occurs in sort of roundabouts, in seasons, in loops, in cycles. When you embark on a circular walk or a circular hike, your ultimate goal is to get back to where you are right now, to get back to where you started. But that's not the purpose of the activity. The purpose isn't to get to this point that you're at. Otherwise, you'd just be like, well, why bother going on the walk if my goal is to be here? Um, The sense of meaning is found en route, isn't it? We can learn a lot from this image about what injects meaning into life and how we might accidentally overlook the opportunities for growth, for learning, for, for deep, meaningful progress because we're focused on getting to the end. This is why I love the concept of seeing life as an island. You know, we get to see the growth happen in and around this single place. It's not one line that we keep moving down, unable to return to places we've been before. It's a place we circle in and around. We get to see the changes happen through the seasons over time. If we want a purposeful journey that we can relax into and enjoy, we need an idea of how to get to where we're going which in the case of a circular walk is back to where we already are. A circular hike 
requires some kind of plan. We need to know where we're going to travel so that we're able to find our way back to the start. So waypoint anchors take us along this path that we've chosen to take. We know we're on the right road because of certain recognisable signs that tell us where we are. We set out with this idea of, okay, we're going to go there. We're going to hit this point. We're going to go to that landmark. Eventually, winding our way back to where we are. And I love this as a metaphor for life's projects and hopes and dreams. You know, if we're constantly thinking, I wonder if I'm going the right way and second guessing ourselves, we run the real risk of getting stuck, halting ourselves and chasing our tail, unable to ever oscillate in a meaningful way. Sometimes we engage with life a bit like this. We're so fixed on the idea of a destination, you know, the proverbial end of the rainbow, that we actually lose our sense of place in the present. We stop identifying the simple steps that we're taking. We forget to look for the meaningful waypoints. And we might end up getting lost. But then we think, well, if I just keep going this way, maybe eventually I'll get to where I want to be. Yet the chances of that happening become very slim. Over time, anxiety and panic might set in. What am I doing? Where am I? All of this feels unfamiliar. I don't know which way I'm supposed to go. But this is not the end of the matter. You know, if we just stop for a moment, pause, look up, get the map out, find ourselves on the map. There is always a way back. And then when we do that, this moment, this temporary getting lost, this temporary drift becomes part of the adventure itself. Because the treasure is found right here, right now. The stories, the getting lost, the views, the looking up, the perspective. Look how far I've come. These leave us fundamentally changed when we finally make it back to the start. It's the story, really, of Serenity Island. It's not a program that works for everybody. But if you've resonated with what you're um, hearing, with what I've been talking about in this episode, then it may well be exactly what you're looking for essentially a six-part course that goes through uh, a meaningful goal awareness process, I think is a way to describe it, that leaves you with a sense of your life as an adventure. Um, And it will equip you with tools, uh, maps and clarity to see what matters most to you. And you'll have some really practical, ridiculously simple actions that you can take that will bring you away from, out of the drift and towards a really meaningful adventure, something that you're in the driving seat of designing, creating, imagining. And this will, uh, this is kind of underpinned by some processes that keep this going. It's not just a, a one-time thing. It's something that is going to be building habits into and around your life so that you kind of stay in that purposeful sense of experimental living. Um, You can go to serenityisland.me to learn more about when the program next opens and and how you can join a voyage back to your own Serenity Island. I'm going to finish this episode by playing the first of six soundscape meditations that accompany the course. Um, These emerged themselves as as a rather experimental um, thing as I was creating the program content. uh, This sort of gentle narrative arc blossomed through the island soil um, and I found myself sort of bringing this aspect of of the island to life through music and through a sense of story. Um, And so, yeah, I would say if you 
if you listen to this and, and resonate with with how it sounds and, and what it's how it speaks to you then do come and check out serenity island uh, dot me that's m e um as always i'd love to hear from you if anything in this episode has particularly spoken to you you can get in touch via social media uh, through the website or via email andy at andymort.com all right take care i'll speak to you again very soon bye-bye Last thing you remember, you were falling. It was night time, a moonless night, dark, misty. You couldn't see anything when the fog descended. The light from your torch was unable to locate the path in front of you. It blinded your vision as it rebounded back off the opaque wall in front of you. And then you heard a great cracking sound. A rupture. An unravelling. And the ground opened up. And swallowed you.
water laps at the surfaces around you. You can hear waves calmly teasing the land. And as you tentatively open your eyes, you look around to see that you're in a wooden boat. You notice the strong and peaceful glow of twin lighthouses at the end of two piers in front of you. They look like welcoming arms, beckoning you in, as a strong current pulls the boat towards the harbour. You pass between the lighthouses, and as you do so, you see a sign. It says, Welcome home. The boat bobs into the harbour and bounces gently off the wall, where a familiar stranger is waiting. The harbour master has a grin from ear to ear. He tells you he's been expecting you. He'd hoped you'd see the lights. You throw him the rope and he moors the boat to the land. He reaches out his hand, repeats your name, and says once again, Welcome home. As you step up onto the path, a deep feeling of familiarity sweeps over you. Where am I? You ask. Serenity Island. How did I end up here? The harbour master laughs with a calm and knowing compassion. You've always been here. It's just a long time since you've seen it like this. I can't wait to show you around. You're going to fall in love with it all over again. He points to an old wooden lodge at the end of a lantern-lit cobbled path. That's where you'll be sleeping. You don't say anything, but your body begins to relax and your face reflects the deep sense of home that you feel but can't quite put into words. As you approach the front door, you notice warm, comforting aromas in the atmosphere around you. The post-storm petrichor, the wood smoke rising from the chimney, and the smell of your favourite meal that seems to be coming from within the lodge. The harbour master opens the door and invites you in. Your eyes cannot hide the excitement as you look around and see what's inside. I'll let you get settled, he says. Relax. You're home.
You notice that all your favourite things are here. Items you assumed were lost to the annals of history. Toys you'd spent hours playing with when you were a child. Objects and instruments from the games with which you used to get lost in your imagination. Old favourite clothes and books, TV shows, video games and movies. Songs you used to sing. Music to which you would dance. The notepads and crayons. The brushes and canvases. Everything laid out to perfection. Everything's here. Curated, not cluttered. A museum of your life. There's a card with your name on tucked into the handle of your favourite mug. You pick the mug up and take a sip of what's inside as you open the envelope. Wow, you think, as the warmth flows into and fills every part of your being. And you're drawn back to the living space where you can hear your favourite music playing and you can see your food is waiting for you at the table. It is only now you realise quite how hungry you are. You sit down and sink into your chair. Close your eyes. Take a deep breath. And try to take it all in. As you eat, every bite is oozing with flavour and sparkle. You savour every moment with deep awareness. And as you take your last bite and finish your drink, you're completely in this moment. And it's enough. You are enough. You're not wondering what comes next. It's an unfamiliar feeling. Perhaps the first time you've ever felt it in such a way. This is enough. You are enough. You take the card out of your pocket again to finish reading it. On the back you notice that it's been signed by all the people who have mattered most in the world to you throughout your life. You feel deeply connected. You feel a sense of belonging and you feel completely aware in this moment that you're not alone. As you open the card, you see that it reads, Are you ready for an adventure of your lifetime? It's happening. Now. Welcome home. Once again, you sink back into the warm, cosy safety of this moment. And you whisper to yourself, Maybe I am home.